For our scripture reading this morning, I'm going to read from Ephesians, just three verses, starting with chapter 5, verse 30. Ephesians 5, verse 30, and I'll read through verse 33. Ephesians 5, 30 through 33. Beginning to read then with verse uh, 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The title of the sermon this morning is Intimacy, Fleshly and Spiritual. Spiritual. Uh, I have that title because we have, we're coming to the Lord's Supper and part, one of the dimensions of the Lord's Supper is the intimacy of the Supper. The idea that we are communing with God. And sometimes people use the word commune and they just flip it off very easily as if it just, I don't know what the, what it means for them, but the idea of communing is that you are communing with uh, another person, uh, communing with God, being a, a, a synonym would be being intimate with God. And so God has given us the Lord's Supper <clears throat> as a device or an instrument for uh, our closeness with him, our intimacy with him. And uh, this verb, one of the verses here is really an amazing verse uh, because it, um, it uh, ties together the idea of marital unity or marital intimacy with the intimacy of uh, the, the, the intimacy that we would have with God uh, generally, but then especially as we think of communing, communing with the church, with Christ in the, in the supper, then we would have a special sense of this in the in the supper. And it's always difficult uh, with to to interject meaning into the Lord's Supper because it's a ceremony. It's a kind of a liturgical thing, if you will, and it's very easy for us to just go through the pattern. We're used to doing it. We've seen it done from our youth up, and so it's very easy for us to just fall back into that pattern and not think too much about it. But if you miss the idea that this covenant meal is a meal that is supposed to encourage us or uh, generate for us a greater intimacy with God, then you have missed a, a real central idea that's related to the idea of the Lord's Supper. Now, to, to explain this, uh, this communion or this intimacy... As I said, the Lord uh, provides, and here uh, Paul provides a picture, a word picture of, uh, of a, a, a sexual uh, physical union that is possible with people, most uh, uh, obviously in the merit, marital state. And he, he gives us this picture as a way to help us to understand that this idea of communion or intimacy is a very, very a serious and important dimension for us 
in terms of our understanding, in terms of our faith, and in terms of, of the Lord's Supper. And we can learn a lot about the Lord's Supper by studying, uh, studying this. <clears throat> now, um, the, the idea of marital love, uh, in, uh, in Latin there's the term coitus or uh, co coition, uh, co co uh, which is Latin for coming together, and so it uh, it uh, provides uh, this picture of that uh, that Paul is trading on here. The two and, and there's no there's no dodging it because he quotes from the verse in Genesis: "The two shall become one flesh." He points to the verse in Genesis that has the the most to say about this intimacy uh, that a husband and wife is supposed to have together, and when they start a new family. The two shall become one flesh. The, the two individuals will come together, and through their intimacy, they will create a new entity, a new family. And it's all good. And uh, so there are, um, uh, there are two things that, uh, that are decried here. One, uh, when, we, when we begin to talk about uh, sex or sexual intimacy in the Church of Christ, we note two really bad errors that are almost always made. In fact, the errors are made more often than the right idea. But there's uh, uh, there's the um, there's either a deification of uh, sex in our culture today where it, it's, it's supposed to um, eclipse the Lord. So important and so high and transcendental that it eclipses the Lord. So either a deification or Sometimes a demonization, and Christians have not been the only ones to do this. Uh, people uh, they have a sense of their sin, a sense of the problems of uh, sexual intimacy in life. Uh, we adopted our, our second son Carl uh, from South America. One of the problems in South America was that they didn't have a whole lot going on down there, so intimacy was the big thing, and, and many extra children were produced who had no, there, there was no place for them. The people that were having them had no money to take care of them, and so they'd set the, they'd set, they'd send these little children, two and three years old, out on the street to beg for money, uh, and, um, and then they would get in trouble, trouble with each other, trouble with the police. They'd, they'd literally turn feral, which if you know that word means uh, turning wild like a wild cat, a feral cat or a feral dog or something like that. <laughs> and so, um, and the, the world, the world's foolishness, when, when we see with, uh, that God uses this in such a good way in Genesis to create a family, to create family unity, to, to, to blend two people, individuals with their own family traditions who, who would otherwise go two different ways, but he causes them to come together, which is the basis of the Latin word coitus or uh, coition. He causes these people who otherwise might just never, they might pass by each other for the rest of their life, but he causes them to come together and, and create a brand new family. Now the, the idea is in the Lord, a family that like, like uh, the fifth commandment, that is, honors father and mother and passes the faith of father and mother down to the children and then from the children on to the next generation and then to the next and then to the next. So there's such a beauty here 
uh, that, uh, you know, we might be surprised that Paul uses this metaphor or this picture. But we see that he does that on purpose. It's a very poignant idea. And um, as, I, as I go through this, I'm going to deal with uh, about five scriptures, Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 10, Psalm 139, John 15, and of course the passage that we read, Ephesians 5. I'm going to deal with all these, uh, these five passages, but I just, uh, uh, I just point out before we start that, that I'm going to deal with them uh, both in terms of the goodness and the holiness of sex and also, um, also in an antithetical way. Of reasoning, So I'm going to look at these scriptures and say, and including Ephesians 5, what does it teach? What does it not teach? It's very helpful to think antithetically. Now, the word, that comes from the word antithesis, which means that there are two things that are, are opposite to each other. And it's very good to, to not just teach positively. Say, well, what the, the scripture teaches this positively, because there are, all, there are all kinds of possibilities that somebody can say, well, you say that the scripture teaches this, but what does it not teach? What, if it teaches A, then what is the opposite of that? What is non-A? And so we're going to look at these scriptures, and, um, and because the, this, these scriptures have a lot to say about communion and what we understand of what we're doing in uh, communion. If we, see a, if, we, if we see a pig in a, in a farm, on a farm pasture or farm lot, we were perfectly justified to say the pig is not the cow or the cow is not the pig. And you learn something, you, you clear your idea more about the pig by, by thinking what it is not. And believe me, pigs do not behave like cows and cows do not behave like, like pigs. Or, you know, uh, uh, other things, you know, tree and a goat or something, or tree and grass. There are different things that God has created in the world and they have a uniqueness all in themselves. And so, as we come to this passage in, in uh, Ephesians five, we have to ask ourselves, what does it uh, what does it uh, tell us, and what does it not tell us? Well, one of the first things that we see when we talk about coitus or uh, coition, uh, one of the things that we learn right away is that uh, the the Intimacy of marriage does not obliterate the individuals who came to it. And I mentioned this because when, when it comes to religion, when it comes to Christianity, very often people, when they think of being spiritual or when they think of communing with God, they get these wrong pagan ideas of what that means. This does not mean that you lose your individuality. Uh, when we come together to commune, we then uh, in, in marriage we then separate afterwards. We're still who we are. We share something together in in unity, but then we we are we continue to be individuals. And I say this because of the the pagan view of religion, the pagan view of spirituality, often thinks that that the real beauty of religion or the real beauty of Christianity has to do with the obliteration of the self or the transcendency of the self uh, over everything else so that the self is lost in, the, you might say, the transcendental fog above. But when we, when we have our devotions with the Lord, when we take communion, there, there, there is a, a real sense of communion in these things, but we never 
lose our identities as people. God created us as we are. He created us for a purpose, to be who we are as individuals and as people. And so uh, we don't um, we don't think of this in, in the way of obliteration or um, uh, mixing ourselves in such a way that we lose our self-identity. Uh, neither does this mean, in, in Ephesians 5 here, neither does this mean that our unity with God or our communion with God means that we blend ourselves with God in such a way that our, our spiritual being uh, it becomes one with God. That's more of an Eastern religion idea. But it's not in Christianity. We, we, may, we may have a, uh, an intimacy with God, but it's not at the, the consequence of that is not at the loss of our individual uh, feelings or individual personalities. Sometimes in, in the charismatic movement, the idea is that you... Uh, that you just you become sort of uh, in a, a super spiritual fog, and that that's really high Christianity. And I'd say no, no. I remember one day uh, I went to a charismatic meeting. This was I was in college. Many some of you with the Jesus movement was alive and well back then. And I went to this church, and they were they were uh, saying that they were trying to help everybody to speak in tongues. And so I didn't want to be. A spoil sport. I, I I didn't I didn't really think that it was real, but I thought, well, I they said come down for it if you want the gift of tongues. So I thought, well, I will come down and see what they've got to say. So I went down in front, and uh, the fellow was he was had the, all of us down there that were looking for this spiritual gift, and he he said, okay, just to start to say these sounds, uh, just uh, say say these sounds, just follow me and say these sounds. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if God is going to give me the gift of tongues, I don't have to say the sound, you know, I, I mean, he'll give me the gift. Of, I knew he, when he converted me, I didn't bring anything to it. <laughs> All things became new and it was him, not me. And so uh, I learned very quickly that the, there were people that just tried to uh, pretend that uh, you could get super spiritual or you could get some on a higher plane with the Lord by just saying gibberish. And, uh, but I, I knew when, in the Bible, that that's just not God says that He uh, that He blesses people with a sense, and so even in the Corinthian church, when people spoke in tongues, they also uh, could, you can interpret those tongues. That it was a language, a foreign language, and indeed, the word tongue in the Old Testament is a is a um, a synonym or a way of saying foreign language. So that when the people of foreign tongues. Uh, judged the Israelites or, or um, afflicted the Israelites, it was, a, it was a sign that they were taken captive, like by the Assyrians or by the Babylonians. They would hear strange tongues, all right, but it would be Assyria, the Assyrian language or the Babylonian language, and it would be, it would be an affliction to them. So um, when, we, when we look at this, when, when God says that it's something that this, the communion with God compares in some way to um, uh, sexual intimacy. He's not. He's not saying any of these things. He's saying, that, but he is saying that it is something like that. It's comparable to uh, the communion that two perfectly different individuals can have together in the marital uh, state. 
So if we want to look at the pagan view of, of, uh, of spirituality, we can look at 1 Corinthians uh, 10. <clears throat> and we see there, there's a whole half a chapter on the idea of the idolatrous view of intimacy. Uh, 10 starts out, Moreover, brethren, I do not, I'll, I'll just run through, I'll read it, and I'll give you sort of a running commentary on it. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. And he's saying that there a, was a kind of communion amongst the Israelites. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All are of the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. So this is talking about a kind of a communion within Israel as the people were together. Uh, so Paul says, For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. When Moses went through the wilderness, he, they cried out for water, and God gave them a rock that would follow them around. And from that rock, it was like a, a, a supernatural well wherever they went, that that rock would, out of that rock would pour enough water to, to, to drench or to satisfy all Israel. And they would all drink of it together. Um, now these things, Paul says, became our examples or our metaphors or our comparisons to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now let us commit, nor, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And they're thinking here of the, of the bad incident at Baal Peor where they got involved with these pagan people and they got, they got sexually seduced by these pagan people. At Baal Peor. And Paul said, And one day 23,000 fell, uh, close to 24,000. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some have also tempting and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain, as some of them were that were complained, but were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all of these things focused to them, happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition and upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands heed, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overcome, overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to. But with the temptation will also be able to make a way of escape that you may be able to hear it. Therefore, my beloved brethren, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing. Now, this is where he starts dealing with communion. The cup of blessing which we bless is not the communion of the blood. I, he said, it, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So he's saying that there's something deeply spiritual, deeply unifying that's going on in communion. For uh, though many are one bread in one body, for we all partake of that one meal. So he's saying as we eat together, there's a sense of oneness that we ought to sense, we ought to share, we ought to appreciate a spiritual oneness. He says, uh, observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices Partakers of the altar. When, when the same animal was sacrificed, then the people would eat of the sacrifice afterwards, like in the Passover. 
What am I saying then? That idols are anything or that what is offered to idols is anything? See, when Paul, when Paul was preaching, there was a problem of people having communion with, with idols, with false, uh, uh, with false religions. So they would, they would have a fall, a fall they, would be, they would go and they would honor, in a sense, the false religion. Some of them were just coming in from the cold into the church. So they were, sometimes they would go to the Christian church and then go to the pagan church. And so Paul says, if you eat of an idol, if you eat communion, you are becoming one with the God with whom you eat it. And he said, what am I saying then? Is the idol re real or is that what is offered? That an idol really real or anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So he's saying here that, that you could, that it's possible in this world to commune, to have this deep unity, a, a kind of deep unity. It's a, it's a, a, a false approximation of the unity that we can have with the Lord. But it's a unity nonetheless. It's a communion. And so Paul warns them against this. And, uh, and says, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? He's warning the people of that day. If you commune with Christ, you cannot leave this table and then go commute with the pagans of the world, with the pagan practices of the world, with the, with the pagan devils of the world. This is a holy meal. You ought to be communing with God. You ought to know that you're communing with God. And even if you don't come to the supper with the proper intelligence, he's saying to them, beware, because the God of holiness can strike back at you once you leave this scene and then daily with others. So Paul here is dealing with both the pagan view of communion and the Christian view of communion. There is a communion there, but it has to be focused rightly upon the living God and the ways of the Lord. Now, if we ask ourselves, well, that, if that's what it teaches, if communion is a positive communion, we ought to be careful about it. What does, what does, the, what does the Bible teach about our union with God? The, the meal is obviously a meal, uh, an instrument for communion or for union with God. Uh, but what, what else do we know about this from the Bible? Well, it's helpful if you think of the Trinity. Because the Father, we have, we have union and communion with Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, each a little bit different in their ways. Um, with, the, with the Father, we were united with the Father through adoption, but also by his knowledge, by his sovereign knowledge. If you turn to Psalm 139, there's a rather, it's rather extraordinary there talking about this communion via the, the knowledge that God has of, it, of us. Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now, does that not remind you of two people that might come together and uh, come to know each other uh, in, the, in the sexual intimacy for the first time? O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You see the, the sense in which God, the point here is that God, his, his, omni, his om, um, omniscience, in his omniscience, in his sovereign knowledge, when, he, when God looks at us, he sees right through us. There's nothing hid from him. 
of who we are. We, we often pretend for other people that we're different than we are. But if you stand before the Lord, there's no pretending because of his sovereign uh, knowledge, his sovereign knowledge of who you really are. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. God knows everything about us. His, his view is not cannot be impeded by our flesh or by our obscuring his vision by hiding in the house or the basement. God sees right through us. We're transparent to the Lord. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways, for there is not a word on my tongue. But, O oh Lord God, you know it all together. People often say, I, I, they'll say something that's negative, and they say, oh, I didn't mean that. See, when we say that, when we put up a, when we put up a fence or a, a blind and say, we, I didn't mean that, God sees right through that. <laughs> he knows exactly what you meant. You cannot hide from the Lord. So, for there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. Well, so you see, this is the difference between divine knowledge and human knowledge. We know things, but only after a fashion. But God knows them through and through. And so one of the ways that we have uh, intimacy and communion with God the Father is through this knowledge that he has of us. But then when we come to the Son, we are united with the Son via his incarnation. He became a flesh and dwelt among us, the Bible says. Uh, Philippians 3, 3, uh, there's a passage that talks about how because Christ came and emptied himself, so we ought to empty ourselves in serving other people. So there's this connection between the Son and us. And uh, we are united with the Son uh, through love, we think of the love of 1 Corinthians 13. I'm not going to go into that now. But uh, 1 Corinthians 13, John 17, uh, he prayed, just as we are one, Father, let, let me be one with the church, let the church be one with me. We are, we, are, we are united with Christ in terms of the word. John 15, John 15, 4 and following talks about this. Uh, <clears throat> I am the vine, you are the branches. Well, uh, I'm sorry, I started a verse too late. He said, abide in me and I in you. It's talking about a unity. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine or unless it's united with the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Anyone who does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire. They are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. And it goes on from that. It talks about... Uh, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide, loved you, love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandment, you will abide in my love. 
So we abide with the Son as we abide in his word. As we're united with his word, as his word becomes dominant over our lives, we have the spiritual unity with him, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we are further united with Christ by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sometimes called in the Bible the seed, the seed of the Spirit. It's like God implants his uh, uh, divine, uh, be careful, his, his uh, theological seed in us, and where we were dead, now we come to life. It's called regeneration. Generation has to do with uh, biological life, but this is a spiritual biological life. And so with the Son, we become uh, alive because of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus said the Holy Spirit was given to us so that we might understand and see and abide in him easier and more effectively. So um, in this... Um, in this uh, comparison between marital love or marital communion and the, the church and the, the things of the church, the things of Christ, we see that uh, these things are meant to be applied to God. And uh, in, 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 in regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the, the Bible says, don't grieve, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is in us. We are united with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Christ does not dwell in us literally. He's, he's at the right hand of God the Father. But because the Holy Spirit is one with Christ and uh, he's one with us, we do commune via the Holy Spirit with our Lord Jesus Christ and also with the Father. And so... Um, uh, the the Holy Spirit is a tremendous has a tremendous resource in terms of our communion with God, and then if we look at the if we look at the words of institution for the Lord's Supper, we see we see an amazing comparison. If we look at the language of the institution, First Corinthians eleven twenty three uh, says, uh, "This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Uh, this is my blood." the blood of my covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. Well, what does it mean by this use of the body and the blood? Well, you see, it means that um, that uh, the body, the, it's, it stands for the body of Christ. Uh, we are not, uh, it doesn't say, um, this is the, when Christ says, this is my body, which is broken for you, he doesn't say, this is my soul or this is my deity which is broken for you, so you commune with the deity in the sense that you become divine in your communing, that would be pagan. In, in the creation, God is God and we are the created being. So when he says, this is my body which is broken for you, that focuses on the who that we're communing with. We're communing with the body of Christ. And of course, there's a unity in Christ between body and soul or body and spirit. But... Uh, we, we, we cannot become divine gods by our communion, but we can become very close to God. And Christ is the second person of the Trinity who helps us to do that. And then when he says that we commune, we commune with the blood of Christ, if the body represents the who of what we're communing with, the Holy Spirit or the blood reminds us of what Jesus did 
uh, Jesus lived a life of righteousness. His blood was like a supernatural life-giving because it was absolutely righteous. It came from the, the lamb without blemish. And it was given for people who were sinful. And so just in terms of when we study Christology or we study who Jesus Christ was, we can study the person of Christ and the work of Christ. In a sense, we get that same sort of, of, of idea, that same sort of division in the, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And we see that the, the, the blood represents the work of Christ and the body represents uh, the person of Christ. And so as we eat and drink those things together, we are led to believe that we can commune with uh, Jesus Christ himself through this supper. We can have a deep sharing, a deep communion, and, uh, and even with the, the deity, the, the triune God, who, uh, who has, uh, tells us that he has put all of these things together. <clears throat> and so as we go to the communion table, just realize that this is not just a ceremony. This is not just symbolic of some things. No, God, God's purpose is that we would really commune. The, 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 purpose, uh, the purpose of getting, getting married to somebody is not that you'll just have some sort of a symbolic union. No, it's that you really become one flesh. You're united, and you start a family together. There's a real significance there and a real power there in terms of what you are doing. The world may get so confused about these things. The world may glorify sexuality. But as much as they glorify sexuality, they know nothing of real intimacy. But in Jesus Christ, we can learn intimacy, what it means to be intimate with the Lord as creatures, as created people. We don't become divine, but we sure do enjoy the majesty of the living God as we commune together. So with that having been said, let us remember this illustration from Ephesians and let us go forward to uh, commune with the Lord.